This episode of Roderick on the Line is sponsored by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website, portfolio, or online store. For a free trial and 10% off anything you buy, visit squarespace.com and enter the offer code SUPERTRAIN at checkout. A better web starts with your website. Hello. Hi, John. Hi, Merlin. How's it going? Oh, man, take a look at my life. You're a lot like you. Mm. Right? Mm-hmm. He was a sports writer. What? Neil Young's father. He was a Canadian sports writer. I didn't know that. Yes. Yeah. Well, I'm not, I'm not sure why he would tell his dad about needing someone to love the whole night through, but... Yeah. It's Canada, you know, they're the very disclosing people. Hard to know what you're supposed to tell your dad. <laughs> <laughs> that Neil Young, though, mm-hmm. I think about him a lot. Yeah, what do you think about? Well, you know, he is one of those, he is very affecting. I totally agree. He is one of the songwriters in my very small canon of people that I just go, whatever you do. Is okay by me, and yeah. I, and I think I was embarrassed a little bit when he became a, sort of a grunge cause celeb or a celeb. Was he already in your pantheon at that point? Oh, from the moment I heard him, yeah, you know, like back in the seventies, I was like, "What is that keening sound?" I used to have really mixed feelings when I was at that kind of high school age when I first was exposed to a lot of Neil Young, I had mixed feelings because I would think every song he plays on acoustic guitar sounds so pretty. And then oh. he does that weird one note guitar solo. And now I think it's pretty genius. <laughs> yeah. I thought I, I wasn't so sure about the one night one note guitar solo, but, but um, then I started playing one note guitar solos <laughs> and they are great fun to play. Really, yeah. really fun. But uh, but yeah, you know the 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 moment of real conversion for me with Neil Young was 1980, maybe. And I mean, I'd, I'd grown up hearing his music, of course, all of the like classics, like the AOR tracks, right? But 1980, I I I I, I got hip to his like weird rockabilly record. Oh yeah, everybody's rocking. Uh-huh. <laughs> and and I liked it. I liked it just sort of instinctively in that th- that was back in the $1 record bin uh, era that we've talked about before. Yeah. It's like Trans and Landing on Water were in the nice price bin. Yeah. F- pretty well, much and- until they stopped being a nice price bin. <laughs> and that's the thing, Trans, so I got I got the Rockabilly record and I was like, I like this. And then I got Trans and I liked it, and it's so different. Really? And of course, I I liked Reactor. That was one of my first <laughs> ever another one first ever dollar bin records. And so I was like, this guy makes everything. He makes all kinds of music, and I like it all. Yeah. Uh, I really liked Trans. The the vocoder stuff uh, uh, connected with me when I was a little kid. You know, so, you know the backstory on that? Yeah, for trying to communicate with his son. Isn't that interesting? It's really fascinating. But so by the time, you know, Pearl Jam was like wheeling him out 
Or he was he was wheeling that out. I imagine him coming out on a supermarket dolly. Oh my my my! <laughs> I was like, ah, oh, come on, this is gross. Like, I don't want to. This isn't fun. Although, when I think about it now, <laughs> Neil Young was probably the the age then that I am now. Isn't that bizarre? <laughs> during this, during the Pearl Jam era. And it was like, oh, why is the old man up there? <laughs> I hate thinking those thoughts. Uh, he's he's very interesting to me because there's um, there's certain uh, songwriters and performers that you know elicit very strong feelings from people, and and you know I think of people like I guess Dylan in particular, I guess, or maybe yeah. Paul McCartney to an extent, but yeah. people who people have extremely strong feelings about like this one record they did is probably one of the greatest things ever made. And this other record they did is like the worst thing I've ever heard. And you can hold both those thoughts in your head. And, you know, uh, the thing about Neil Young, like Dylan or like, you know, I guess like Springsteen to an extent, but whoever, whoever you, you would count in this pantheon, people who are contrarians, especially Dylan. I love a contrarian. I love somebody who's like, you think you got me figured out? You don't got me figured out. Uh-uh. And then second, like continuing along those lines to just be unflappable about doing whatever they want to do next and just going, well, that's, this is a thing. It's going to be a thing about the Iraq war and it's going to be a lot of people singing in a barn. That's just the thing it's going to be. <laughs> Looking here, Neil Young was 45, my current age in 1990. <laughs> oh, you're kidding. Literally, he was my, the age I am now when he oh, came out with this God. notes for you. Is and that right? It was just like, oh, what's up, Gramps? Is that's the one? The title track is the uh, advertising song, and then oh, I guess is "Rocking in the Free World" the title track from I that. I think so. Well, album? eighty. Oh, so no, that's that's nineteen eighty nine, right? Well, so what? What? Eighty nine around that time was when he came out with that crazy, uh, that nutty, crazy horse record, and then right, he did so the he feedback was, he record. Was, he was he was literally younger than me when Ugh. he wrote Rockin' in the Free World. That doesn't that seems like some kind of sci fi portal thing. That doesn't right? seem that possible. Weird? Yeah. No, he was already he was already like profoundly classic artist. You think 20. about it, he was in Buffalo Springfield when he was, I think, like nineteen. Ugh. And then but now I, mean, I hate, now some, I hate him. Well, see, that's how that's how <laughs> Neil works. But I know. I'm telling you, man, getting that um What's it called? That triple album that he had of um, greatest hits came oh, out in like seventy six yeah, or something um, like that. Uh, oh. Yeah, the one with the guitar case, well, with guitar all the case on, on the cover. Um, but the thing was, he was like he was pretty famous by the time he was like twenty three. Yeah, yeah. Her, yeah. Uh, the the uh, the on the beach. Mm-hmm. How do you feel about on the beach? I'm not super familiar with it. Is that is that from that trilogy? I know. I know. Um, I know tonight's the night, yep. and, uh, and I don't know on the beach well, but every one of them is a little journey, you know? I mean, when you, journey, when you put it right. on, you open your heart to it, and, like, there's something amazing on every one of them, and, uh, you know... Open your heart with a key. I like that. It's such um, a lonely number. Comes a time when you're drinking. And then that awesome uh, Lot of Love song. The guy does it all. That's a nice song. I was thinking uh, yesterday about the Beatles. Yeah, I was too. And I was realizing that all the, well, two things, all of that music hall stuff that Paul McCartney was putting in the later Beatles that Lennon was so mad about being corny. It's granny music. 
granny music. That music is was essentially the same distance from them as the Beatles are from us. Yeah. That's one of my favorite games to play, as you know. Well, yeah, I like to play that. Yeah, I, there should be an official name. for it. We should just call it the Beatles game, mm. which is to take whatever that we what it was. Let's call it seven years. Mm-hmm. Right. So their their first major British hits were in, I think, 63. Yeah, seven years. Seven years. So that's that's that's, uh, you know, yeah, almost the, the age of my daughter. That's yeah, 2000, there's, there's, 2007 till now. There's cheese in my refrigerator that's seven years old. <laughs> This episode of Roderick on the Line is brought to you by our very good friends at Squarespace. Guys, you know Squarespace. Are you using Squarespace? You should know. Sing it along with me. They are the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your very own professional website, portfolio, or online store. Guys, we have been with Squarespace since day one of Roderick on the Line. Every time you've listened to this show, you're using Squarespace. Why not try it out for yourself today? It is the best. It is so simple to use. They have an easy drag-and-drop interface. They've got beautiful free templates that you can tweak and all the designs are responsive, so they look great on every device, every dingus. If you get stuck, Squarespace has 24 by 7 support with teams in New York and Dublin. And here's the crazy part. Squarespace plans start at $8 a month. That includes a free domain name if you sign up for a year, which you should totally do. Every plan comes with the ability to create your own online store. Are you getting this, people? You can sell your own stuff that you make right from your very own site. So whether you're a podcaster, a musician, a procrastinating musician, a writer, a lapsed writer, a photographer, anything, any kind of dingus can do this. Go out. Check out Squarespace. Tell them you heard about it from Roderick on the Line. In fact, you will get a free trial plus 10% off any package you choose by using the special offer code SUPERTRAIN when you check out. Our thanks to Squarespace for supporting Roderick on the Line. We could not do it without them. But also... (laughs) Yeah, right. The Beatles game, but it's also like the Beatles were X years old when X. Oh, I and, know, I know. And then, but the other thing, when I started thinking about the musical business, and I realized that I was, I was talking to our good friend Sean Nelson about this. Lennon was so upset at how at how McCartney was so cheesy, so corny. McCartney's corniness is the is the element that makes the later Beatles music so sinister sounding. Maxwell Silverhammer. I mean, well, even Martha, my dear, mm-hmm. it feels it feels like. I mean, that's a song. I mean, Paul McCartney is corny. That's a song he wrote about his dog, right? In the style of his grandmother's music, but it 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 when it comes on the 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 stereo the first time, you're like, what are these madmen? doing like it 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 was the element that i mean way more than your blues it was the martha my dear that made that record seem like that like it was insane and that they were insane and that this was the that the that it was a a, an acid drenched psycho future (laughs) yeah or like um george on piggies yeah like beyond mannered yeah, right. And 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 how Lennon in his narrowness could have failed to see, failed to appreciate that his idea of what avant-garde was, namely, you know, uh just like the the most sort of the most obvious version of challenging um as Sean said, you know, Yoko. 
basically. Yeah. Like the, the very obvious version of avant-garde, outre, uh, freak, freaky stuff. And he uh, Lenin somehow failed to see that it was it was it was really the juxtaposition of that against this like McCartney like nanny music that makes the Beatles still and made them then so scary. Mm-hmm. You know, like the Beatles are still scary in a way. I don't think I don't think Lennon. I mean, I'm not here to slag John Lennon, but I, I don't think he would have come up with a lot of that stuff on his own. And as you know, QED, as we've discussed before. Paul does not get credit for how much of the banana stuff he brought, especially in their really their amazing years. Like how much of the stuff was not just his uh, facility with like show tune Tin Pan Alley songwriting and knowing how to do interesting turns of a chord. I mean, John John played blues guitar. He was a blues guitar. I mean, he he could play. You know, he was a great guitar player. But Paul was the one that had the mind for figuring out what you could do with all of that stuff. It's just that by himself, I think John would just play screeching blues all day long. Yeah. Yeah, right. Well, yeah, right. And and he's angry, so he makes angry sounding music. Yeah, he's, on the nose. Yeah, he's frustrated, so is he wrote a frustrated sounding song. He is feeling feeling sarcastic, so it's a sarcastic song. And you know, and uh, it's anybody's guess whether Paul McCartney has any of those emotions because he is such a, a, he's such a muppet. That's exactly the word I was thinking. I, do you think how much do you think of that as persona? Because he he seems like he's always on, always on. Yeah, absolutely always on. Like he wakes up, he wakes up, goes in the bathroom, looks in the mirror, and goes, "Good morning, Louv." <laughs> and you're just like, "Fuck you!" Sh- just turn it off. <laughs> but who knows? I mean, I, this is the thing about. Oh my god! Here we go. This is the thing about happy. That's 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 so in, insufferable. The analogies. <laughs> what do you mean? It's just, this is, the song's a bunch. It's like it's it's a it's an adjective for for a chorus, and then there's there's mostly just a lot of analogies as the lyrics. <laughs> <laughs> like a like a hexagon wrench without a Volkswagen. Like a you know. I I, I like that think, song. It's a big hit in our house. Is that right? Oh yeah, my daughter loves it. It's in the uh, Despicable Me Too movie. Oh 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 oh! You, we're not talking about the uh, we're not talking about the Keith Richards song "Happy." Oh, I'm sorry. I thought you were talking about the the guy with the Arby's hat. Oh, the the uh, the the feral. Yeah. No, I that would it would be a long road. Oh, you're talking about bow now now now. Don't you keep me happy? That, that, that what you're talking about? Happy. Oh, I'm sorry. I'll cut all of that out. That's super confusing. I'm sorry, John. You must have thought I had a stroke. No, it's okay. I I, I started to get I started to get the picture because you know I do I do uh, go on the internet, so I've heard people talking about it. You must learn about these things on the dark web. There must be you hear about happy. It's out there. Yeah. Well. Oh, uh, not only that, but do they get the Oscars on the dark web? I I who knows? Couldn't uh, say the part of yeah. That's right. Um, not at liberty to say the the uh, I I t- I live tweeted the Grammys this year, not for myself, but uh, under contract for the talk house website. And so I was, I was watching the Grammys, uh, but I had never heard any of the songs. So they're like, it's getting, more like, it's getting more like that every year for me. Here's the Grammy award goes to Farrell and then you spelled the, his name wrong and the song happy. And I was like, wow, yeah, amazing. Don't care. 
the, the best joke I heard about Farrell was that the that he wears that hat to uh, to distract us from the fact that he looks like a cartoon ant. <laughs> Like a Pink Panther style ant? Yeah. Yeah. yeah exactly you know what? Right. I can't unsee that now. <laughs> um No, but I but 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 I, I was even referring to So you're not- up there in grandpa mode, just tooting away. <laughs> and then this uh this R and B gal is making a big hit. <laughs> oh, look at her. Boy, that dress is sure something. No, I was talking about even more generally the idea of happiness. Oh, oh, you're turboing up. Yeah, that's right. Paul McCartney's yeah. version of like irrepressible, happy, uh, you know, like go getterism. Boost, you know, he's like a he's like a a member of Junior Achievement. <laughs> yeah, and and uh, and you know, I'm I'm intrinsically suspicious of happy. Yeah. Always, always was. Or, were you? All, were you? Are you? Oh, absolutely. Suspicious um, of happy? Yeah, I mean, for me, it's it's, it's a little nuanced, but yeah, I, I mean, I've said this a, a lot of times, but I am basically suspicious of people. Primarily, I am I am a little suspicious of people who seem happy all the time, but I'm super suspicious who talk about how happy they are all the time. Mm-hmm. I think those those people are like they're you know talk about a bottle up and explode type situation. Yeah, you know what I mean? Like it's it you know it's that's manic. Well, I, I I always come back to that picture of McCartney during the recording of Let It Be, sitting at the mixing desk with his like, you know, his attention fully focused on the knobs, his hands there on the desk. George Martin is relegated to the shadows. <laughs> Phil Spector is out shooting bitches. <laughs> he's McCartney's got got all of it, you know, he's got Linda's there, all the hangers on, you know, Ringo's sitting in a chair somewhere and Paul's finally in charge. And he looks so happy to be there. But also like it's in a way it's where he belongs like it it, it was only it was only radical because it was that was the first time it had ever happened. That the that the artist would self be self producing, and now in light of where where we came, like right, Paul McCartney was the first one really to sit down in the in the the first one who wasn't an auteur mm-hmm. or an outsider, right? yeah, the first pop guy to like take the chair and start moving the knobs, and you love him in that picture, you love him in that moment, even knowing that. Lennon is nodding off in the other room, having turned to heroin to mask his his seething hatred of Paul. Yoko's sitting in George's chair. <laughs> yeah, right. George, I hate is, that scene so much. George is walking up and down the hallway, rehearsing his I quit speech. <laughs> he's like, always going to be the youngest one. You know, he's always going to be the little kid. And, you know, and, and, and Ringo is just like, happy to be here. But also, like you, you get the sense, even Ringo. No, I mean, watch that movie. It's and, and this is another reason why. I mean, who knows how much to trust in that movie? But I mean, it's it's that it's you know. I think Paul gets a, a bad rap because first of all, I mean, I'm not sure of in the pre Wings era. Are there that many songs that you could put out there as a Beatles song that are really just about being happy? 
I mean, if they are, there's always there's always a little bit of uh, maybe it's just the John contributions, but there's always a glint of cynicism somewhere inside of all of that, even on like you know a good day sunshine or whatever. I mean, but you know, it's not like Paul just wrote about you know being happy. But but the thing that I just I want I can't let this go by is that I haven't watched that movie in a while because I actually do find it very difficult to watch. It's, oh, it's excruciating. It is really really painful that that even got out there. There's a reason it's hard to find now because it's really hard to watch. Mm-hmm. Nobody comes off looking very good. And but you know, the Paul because I think because of that movie and maybe interviews and stuff, Paul got the reputation of being the guy. That everybody thought was, oh, he's all always the cheery guy who's like being super annoying and telling us what to do. But you know, he was trying to hold it together. Mm-hmm. He was, I, I mean, I just got the feeling in watching that that he was not trying to be a dick. He was, he was trying really hard to to keep the band together uh, and, and and find a way to make it work. Well, every- he was trying to do that, but he also, like uh, as as Sean Nelson, uh, ultimate Beatles authority, said so eloquently, like the competition between. John and Paul uh, took the took the shape of John, you know, s- like sneering at Paul. But Paul's response was like, "Oh, how many songs have you got? Oh, five. Oh, that's good, good. Well, uh, I've got twenty five. Like, but he was. I mean, John was practically. I mean, he would. Wasn't there points where he was just whispering to Yoko? He wasn't even speaking to them. Oh yeah, no. John is the worst. Yeah, but he was. But he like, was not trying very hard. He wasn't trying very hard, but you know, like, oh, think about in your, think about in your relationships or your work situations when a thing is dying or when a thing is like really broken and the one guy who's like cheerfully trying to keep it all together yeah. by like, you know, by, by doing all the work and <clears throat> being the cheerleader, like the worst guy. Yeah. And especially because, and this is not just about Paul, but whoever that character is, and it has been me, it's also that that person is clearly ignoring the vibe that everybody else is feeling which is that we don't right. get along and right. and you're not acknowledging that and that's not making it better no that's crazy making right so yeah paul boy oh paul yeah. i just can't i just don't want to revisit thinking about paul mccartney anymore all the all the all the many 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 hours of my life wondering about What's going on inside Paul's head? I don't. Ugh. I am. Uh, you know. I. I. Um. I remember when I when I did finally see Let It Be, and. Uh, I don't know. I've never been a fan of of Yoko Ono's work, and I've always thought she seemed like kind of an annoying personality. And I, I very much, I have to say, I'm I'm not proud of this, but I've bought into the idea that she was a very divisive factor in the band. But what a lot of People who are bigger Beatles fans than me pointed out that I get now. But talk about a funny age thing. How many years were the Beatles? Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Functional. And like, and I don't want to just say happy, but I mean, you think about even if you go up through, say, Revolver. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Even by Revolver, John is starting to withdraw. Mm. they're all pretty high a lot of the time which is probably kind of fun but i you know i doubt that uh sergeant pepper was that much of like an exciting group effort every day Mm-mm, mm-mm. there weren't i mean they talk and they all talked about this at one point was why it was so great to do happiness as a warm gun happiness that's the song that made them want to do um 
let the, it be. The, yeah, let it be. They wanted to like bring back the fact that we can rock out as a band because it was the first time in forever they'd rec- actually recorded, kind of written and recorded a song together and huh. played it together. Because everything up till then had all just been pieces and parts and they didn't even want to be in the room. So the funny age thing, you talk about of those seven years, how many of those years were they like maybe two? And even during those two years, they're exhausted from well, having to travel about, and play live. From 59, though, like the, right. the, the amount of time they were really up inside each other's butts. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm playing fast and loose, but only because like the, the time that they were in the national and somewhat, oh, right. definitely in the European consciousness, would be 62, 63. Yeah, right. So, by 65, I mean, it was already they're All the Beatles, they're on top of the world. They're like, they got to be the happiest guys in the world. But they didn't have a minute to themselves. They yeah. were just constantly, they were putting out three albums a year. Oh, I know. And Shaggin' Birds. Shaggin' Birds. Look at that Beatles for Sale record. They do not look like happy campers. No. And the, well, the songs reflect that. They were they get more cynical. They get a little darker. When you were 26, were you a happy camper? No. I, I don't know if my camping a, has ever been all that happy. I was not a happy camper at 26. It's a terrible time. It's a really terrible time. 26, hard times. Oh, it is. It's... It's funny because it's, um, I mean, nothing can be worse than puberty in a lot of ways, but there's something peculiarly, um, something that makes you, I, I think uh, most people probably feel more like a failure for one reason or another by the time they're 27 than any other time. You know, 27 is that magic age where everybody dies. It's the quarter life crisis. There's all those Saturn's return, all those different things that people have names for this. But all I know is that like everybody feels like some part of their life is completely fucked up when they're 27. I'm never going to make enough money. I'm never going to find somebody who loves me for who I am. I'm never going to make the great, I'm never going to be a millionaire before I'm 30. All those different things. 27, around 27, 25 to 28 is when those things really start to hit you. It's mm. that first, is that, I think it's the first really incontrovertible wave of I can't do everything the way i want anymore yeah the, the doors are even very very quietly gently at a distance starting to close and you first start becoming aware of it yeah even if you're and even if you're really successful i don't know this is a hobby horse of mine but i've talked about it in other places a lot but you're like, talking about some other podcast you maybe mean? yeah maybe to myself but you know it's really easy to look at anybody else and think that they're living the life of riley and it's or that they Let's put it this way, especially, and this will bring us back to Roderick on the line. It's really easy to look at anybody else who has something that you don't and think that they, first of all, they probably got it by guile or theft in a way yeah. that you, you deserve to have more. Yeah. Privilege, if you like. And, and everybody else has that and you don't. And there are, they're completely, who could feel sympathy for John Lennon in 1966? Yeah. I mean, when you look at it from outside, but think about, imagine like having to like, you can't even walk around in public. And when you do, there's photos of you on every magazine and about like your life. Like that's, that's hell. Yeah. But yeah, I don't know. You think about that. I mean, what do you think? What do you think they were? I mean, cause they, you know, playing in Hamburg doesn't sound like a cakewalk. They were playing like, weren't they at some points playing eight hours a day? Yeah, but I mean, you know, that's the great thing about the speed back then. Yeah, it's a great thing about being 19 and out in the world is that you're that those doors, those doors have not closed. They are so far in the distance. They they seem like uh, they it seems like you're immortal and you'll live forever. And so that kind of hard. I mean, I you know, I because of my uh, because of my dark web work, Mm. I'm in contact with. You know, some people in their early 20s, let's say. Hmm. Are you using Tor? <laughs> and uh, it's, that's not really something I can Need talk about. Need to know information. Um, and I, you know, and, and, and in a lot of ways, like, I'm always surprised by how 
how smart they are and how thoughtful they are. But every once in a while, I do have to sit through a like one or two day long thumb sucking uh, episode where they're like, God, I can't believe it. I got I to pay my rent and I got to fucking God, I had to work all day and I just it's just not fair. And I, I, I think I think that pretty much every day. Well, I know it, but I mean, but, <laughs> I don't say it. <laughs> but the the and the thing the the reason you don't say it is that you don't expect anybody to be surprised. And the one of the fantastic things about being nineteen is that you can you can it, when four or five things happen all at once, you really do feel like it's the first time it's ever happened. It's the first time anybody ever had to like they know they know enough to know that everybody has to go to work or that everybody sometimes their car breaks the car down. Car breaks or, exactly it's the know, classic, yeah. Or that everybody's mom is a bitch sometimes. But when you know when four of those things happen at once, that's when the the nineteen year old mind when when its lack of experience is revealed because. They're just like so shocked, and and like want to sh- want to get come out to the front of their house and shout like I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore, because who has ever had to be at work, which is already unfair, and their car won't start, and their mom's being a bitch, and they don't have any money, and yeah, there's and they and their clothes don't fit anymore or whatever. And, and you just go like, right, well, everybody, and also everybody all the time has experienced that. And, uh, but that, that feeling of like, I mean, I, uh, I remember being 19 and enduring what now seems like an astonishing level of discomfort and hurt. And being at the time unable to distinguish that from what seemed like an equal amount of discomfort and hurt that it turns out was just normal life. Mm-hmm. Right. Like I was, I was sleeping. Did, did it make you feel sheltered? Like you had been sheltered? No, no. I, I, I mean, I definitely had been sheltered, but the, but the, the problem, the problem for me was that I had no, I mean, I was sleeping outside in city parks and that seemed less or equal that seemed either less difficult or equally difficult to just finding uh, or figuring out how to use a washing machine right so like <clears throat> the the difficulty of the two things uh i i had no i had no way to tell them apart and it turns out now from where i sit sleeping outside night after night in a city park seems really hard and dangerous and um, uncomfortable. Yeah, risky. Whereas using a washing machine is not hard at all and also, like, not even onerous. It's just what you do. But at 19, I couldn't distinguish the difficulty between the two things because using a washing machine was completely alien to me. I, I had, you know, my mom had always washed my clothes until I left the house. And that, you know, I, I imagine them in Hamburg and it's like, yeah, oh, sure, they're playing uh, four sets a night and they're, you know, they're barely sleeping. But that is 
you know, that's no more or less difficult than <clears throat> figuring out how to work an automat um, <laughs> or, you know, or, or whatever, like the, the, the simplest thing, like taking a letter down to the post office. It all seems difficult. And and also all seems easy. Everything's hard until you uh, learn how to do it. Yeah, I mean yeah. that's that sounds it's really facile, but it's true. Um, everything seems possible because you haven't gotten it, and it may be overdue for you to get it. But also everything will seem hard and, and equally hard, and especially if it all comes at once. I mean that's overwhelming. the 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 idea that <clears throat> the idea of cleaning my house still, after all these years. I have never resigned myself to it. Like every time it, it seems like a new, it's a, it, the, the indignation is, is fresh every time of just like, Oh my God, seriously, I have to do this again. Like it's such a waste. Uh, it's such a wasted effort. And especially I, that, when you have a kid and that's real. I, I, I connect immediately back to the 16 year old me. It was just like you just it just gets dirty again. And so many of those other so, so does so does your butt. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah, there's, but, but there's value. Well there's value in wa- doing that. The thing is washing your butt is fun. Yeah. You know, there's a, there's pleasure to be had. It's a nice diversion. But wash but but like cleaning your bathroom is not fun. And that that's another the, the people that the people that really early on in life accepted not just accepted cleaning the bathroom, but found a way to make cleaning the bathroom part of their part of like normal life, I guess Mm -hmm. with no holding on to no um, like resentment about it. I, I do admire them. That seems like a thought technology. Oh, absolutely. And excuse me, the easy to me, the easy analogy no, not to say that I'm great at this, but the easy analogy is brushing your teeth. Brushing yep. your teeth, or for that matter, taking a leak, um, can can be a, a good example of something where you're I like... I think you're pretty good at taking a leak. I'm pretty you good. may not be great at brushing your teeth. I'm pretty efficient at it, I would say. But the um, but you know, if you're if you've reached the pro level of brushing your teeth, you don't really have to think about it. You don't have to plan for it. You know, worst case scenario, you get a new toothbrush and new toothpaste sometimes, but it isn't something where you have to wake up every day and ponder whether that's a thing you're going to do, unless it is. Right. But to or, me, or, or, right. You're like, <laughs> talk yourself in, talk yourself through the, or making coffee, making coffee is another one because you kind of look forward to that. But, but I mean, the, the, that moves out in concentric circles from that. Then you get to stuff like, I got to put gas in the car. It's, mm. it's a pain in the ass to have to keep putting gas in the car, but there's dependencies. You got to put the gas in the car because the car is what gets you to work so that you can buy toothpaste. But, but the, I, I agree with you because there's some things that everybody else seems to have on the brushing their teeth level that I've never gotten to and they might as well be magical to me. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. People I, who no, actually do stuff like rotate their tires and stuff like that. I was at a gas station or clean, the other day, clean their house, and a, a guy walks in. I'm waiting in line, you know, and a guy, a, the guy ahead of me in line, is really decked out in some very like he is uh, he is repping that he is kind of a fly guy. Mm. He's got very white trainers on. He's wearing a kind of like track suit. Very clean tracksuit, uh, uh, like a fedora of some kind. Uh, he is, you know, he is presenting. He has come correct. <laughs> and he's he's waiting in line at the gas station, and then it's his turn. 
and he says to the guy behind the counter, he's like, five on two. Pretty, like, you know, pretty confrontational, or like, not confrontational, but like, the tone is, I'm a big wheel, let's get this moving. Five on two. And he turns and walks out. It took me a second to realize that what he meant was $5 worth of gas on pump two. Mm-hmm. And I was like, gas is $4.45 a gallon. $5 worth of gas. Really? <laughs> really big wheel? He's just topping it off. And, <laughs> and I get so I, His mom's mad if he doesn't return it full. Five on two. So I walk out and I walk past and he, you know, and again, I see him now pumping this one dollar or one gallon worth of gas into the car. And he is completely correct, like really, really uh, steam pressed, this guy, clean. D- dignified. Yeah, but the car is like an 89 Tercel. One of the back windows is held in with, the, with, the, with like electrical tape. And in the driver's seat is his girlfriend, who clearly is working as either a you know, a waitress at a Sherry's or as a, you know, like she, she is younger than he is and has that kind of harried dandruffy look of somebody who maybe is sleeping in her car while she's getting back on her feet. And I was like, sir, you are not correct. You have not come correct. Maybe personally you are correct. Personally, you, your, your style is taken care of, but there are some things you should be taking care of in advance of your style. Some of that might be that maybe some of the work you could do is replace that back window in the car or some other, other thing other than whatever kind of like it just, it was a, it was a, it was a, right. a, a classic moment of like, Hmm, if you are pimping, you gotta, you gotta be pimping in a larger orbit than just going to pimp. Correct. Yeah. Pimp a little bit further out than the tips of your shoes. I guess so. I, I, I've, um, I've been happy to draw those kinds of, um, contrasts over a long time, but I'm, I don't know. I, uh, one of my thought technologies is trying to get, uh, a little broader about who's allowed to have dignity because, you know, in some cases, not because of you in this case necessarily, but in some cases, like, I feel like there's like these dignity police out there. People who are like out there actively policing, like who's allowed to not hate themselves today. <laughs> and it's like, you know, you're pretty fat for somebody who's happy. <laughs> that's, you need to, you need to check yourself, you know? I, I, and that's, it's just something, it's, it's another one of those, it's a very like tertiary, mm-hmm. uh, you know, symptom of our national illness these days. Mm-hmm. But I feel like there is a lot of like, you know, like there's this idea, um, yeah, there's an idea in, in, in mindfulness and in Buddhism that like it's one thing to feel bad and then it's another thing to feel like it's not okay for you to feel bad and mm. that's where you get fucked up. 
because mm. everybody no no it's not no, it's no, not no, ad, I, but i think it's a i think it's an interesting <clears throat> thought technology is to think like um you know i'm always i'm always gonna have problems i'm always gonna have stress but like when am i allowed to still feel okay even yeah. though i've got problems no i'm not saying he should the guy should you know not well and i and i take your i take your comment uh <laughs> the uh, dignity police <laughs> i take i take that uh very well i mean that i, I think you, you make a good point and in reflecting on it my beef with this guy was that his five on the tone of his five on two <laughs> was hey little man behind the cash register right get to work because i need five five on two like he was not if he was in the, if he was a uh if he was dressed to the nines and was like my good sir i can only afford five dollars of gas, and I am, I am, I'm grateful to be on this planet. Pretty, pretty. Would thou, would thou credit me? If you spoke like Ben Acker, hello. <laughs> I would like some gas from you, please. <laughs> right. But instead, you know, like he was fronting. Oh God. And his, you know, and having come correct, there was an element of this, this front of like, I'm a big shot get out of the way and then you get out to the car and you're like oh right no the attitude i mean the attitude's execrable that's that's inexcusable to to act that way i agree with you about the about my tendency to be part of this larger cultural problem of uh of just walking around in a just in a constant like basically a genesis machine of judgment Genesis device of just like. Let me clarify. I'm I'm not saying I don't do it. It's it's something where I mean, unless I am mindful about it, I'm out there making little micro decisions about everything. That mm-hmm. lamp pole's stupid. What a mm-hmm. dumb place for a stop sign. What's up with that guy's hair? Like that's that's my mo. Unless I catch myself. Oh my god! If I I could do an entire television show of uh, an entire television show called "What a Dumb Place for a Stop Sign." <laughs> like <laughs> I can have that conversation. Out loud with myself every day. What the fuck is that stop sign doing there? What the who the fuck? Well, and I, I could fill in your uh, musty musty Thursday by coming in at eight thirty with why the fuck is there not a stop sign here? Well, well, there are, no, but there are places in my neighborhood. You know how people drive in my neighborhood, and there are places where, like, you know, there's that little park uh, south of our house where the streets kind of terminate right where the park starts. Thanks. There are no stop signs. At the end of the downhill avenue heading toward the park, there are no stop signs. There are also no stop signs on the cross street uh-huh. going across. Uh-huh. And somebody died last week. Oh, no. Oh, yeah. Somebody got hit by a taxi um, last week. Oh, because no. that's just that's just the thing. You know, stop signs are costly. Well, there, there's an intersection like that right by my house where the arterial, not to use technical terms here. Is this the one where you got in the fight with the Serbian guy and he made a gesture at you? Yes. Okay. Same one. Yeah, yeah. The arterial turns. And there is a spur off of the arterial that goes exactly <laughs> one block. There are eight houses down there with a grand total of 22 people. How many living. times have you ever seen somebody go in that direction? Well, and that's the thing. I can count the number of times. It's five times in seven <laughs> years. In the meantime, the, the, the turn is, you know, there's 700 cars a day make this turn. But the turn requires that they go across, you know, like like go out into what would what would be oncoming traffic if that was a through road. But what's amazing to me is that the that the that those twenty people who live down that spur road, and you see them do it, like they drive forty miles an hour through that intersection 
without looking left or right because they're asserting the fact that they have the because their street is straight the direction they're going in is straight so therefore they don't need to look you should look you should look out for them there's no sign of any kind no yield sign and so they feel like they have the right of way and and i every time it happens i look and i'm like you may technically have the right of way mm-hmm. if a cop if there was an accident and a cop was here the cop would have very little choice but to say, well, this person was driving straight, and so it's the person who's turning who has the responsibility. But it's kind of a blind corner. Mm-hmm. And what I want to say to each one of these people, I want to go down and leave a flyer on every doorstep in that neighbor, in that, on that one-block street, is like, the, the fact that you technically have the right-of-way does not change does not mean that you live in a bubble of safety like the law does not is not going to protect you from causing an accident and it would be you causing an accident to go hurtling through this like like i like to tell my daughter like when you're dead it doesn't matter who's right right and i (laughs) and i got into a confrontation with somebody i mean we we might have even talked about it confrontation with somebody where i was i was backing into a parking spot on a busy street (laughs) and the guy comes and likes whacks the back of my car because he decided he was crossing mid block at that point and jeez as i'm backing into the parking spot checking my left mirror checking my rear view mirror checking the side mirror looking out the back window i failed to also account for the fact that a guy might be might a pedestrian might decide to cross behind a, a car that's parking and he was upset that uh. because because in his world pedestrians have the right of way. Well, they do have the right of way unless they're breaking the fucking law. Well, but in Seattle there is this. You is, can cross in the middle of a street and then hit somebody's car. That's kind of lame. It's very confusing the law in Seattle because technically I think, or 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 rather the common understanding among pedestrians in Seattle is that they have the ultimate right of way. At I think all that's time. just the Pope. Well, and and every pedestrian in Seattle believes he or she is the Pope. And when I was a when I in the many years that I didn't have a car, I walked around Seattle with a very imperial sense that the pedestrian was God in Seattle. And you see it, it it's very confusing to people from other places because cars will often stop to let a pedestrian cross in the in mid block in the middle of a busy street at the in the peak of the day like somebody's just standing there on the side of the road and looking around not even looking like they want to cross the street just standing there looking around and a seattle driver will come to a stop and wait for this person to indicate what their plan is right and it's just like so that is part of the culture here that's 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 good culture it is, especially if it encourages eye contact about what's going to happen next. It's it's uh, it's it's fantastic, but the problem is it is not universally practiced by either and, side. Yeah, and the law is I think the law is that if you're standing on the sidewalk, cars can go, but if you step into the street looking like you're going to cross, you actually the cars actually do have to yield to you. The only people who routinely do not practice this are the police. Like you, I, I, multiple times, and my mom has written a thousand angry letters to the editor. She's never published, but you step into the into the crosswalk, 
look, you know, trying to make eye contact with the oncoming car. And if it's a cop, they you hear that telltale just, vroom. Yeah, they just blow yep. through. Blow through without. Well, you know, you know, we get that here. <laughs> you know, because they're very important people, the police, and they're probably on their way to something important with their lights off. Yeah, with their lights off and like you know, they're 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 tie loose or whatever. They're they're on their way to they're on, they're on their way to their break. Anyway, so so within Seattle culture, and many 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 times, I would walk out into the street, cause uh, cause a uh, a driver to need to like not stand on it, but like break when he was not anticipating breaking, mm-hmm. and then as I'm walking across, I'm just eyeballing him. Like, because I was 26 and I didn't understand how hard it was to wash your clothes every day. And <laughs> I, what I did understand was that if, if he were to touch me with his bumper, there would be a problem and it would be his problem. But now as a driver, you know, I encounter on a fairly regular basis, people with a, with a similar attitude who are just mistaken about they may not be mistaken that if this went to trial, that they would prevail, but they are mistaken in thinking that they are protected from injury and that they aren't like causing a problem, uh, like a, like a, like a major problem for the city by acting like they're bulletproof mm-hmm. and acting like the, you know, like if, 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 if a driver has to like skid, to avoid hitting you because you decided that this was the moment you wanted to you wanted to assert pedestrian uh predominance or whatever preeminence <laughs> um you're it's not a safe situation right? right so i see that a lot and i and it's just on the list of lectures that i want to give when i get when i finally install the the police bullhorn in my car it's it's one of the reasons no one should be allowed to drive until they're thirty, um, because because hormones are going to lead you to do a lot of dumb stuff. Oh, this is a good plan. We've never talked about this plan. Well, I haven't. I think I, I'd love to dovetail with you on this because I think uh-huh. I'm, I have a pretty exhaustive and persuasive theory about how uh, how the pedestrian and the uh, motorist might be able to get along better. So driver's license pretty punitive on all sides. Let me assure you. You have to you have to wait until you're 30 to get a driver's license, and you got to practice privately for the 14 years preceding that. You have to go somewhere. You pay. You're on a track. You're in a controlled environment. There's a gun tower, and mm-hmm. you have to show that you can drive mm-hmm. like a gentleman. And then at 60 years old, you have to start. Or no, let's say yeah, let's say 60. At <laughs> 60, 60 years old, we're making the wheat thins. At 60, you have to start going to quarterly, uh, like passing quarterly tests. Agility test too, like maybe you have to maybe you have to do like a obstacle course. And you give pop quizzes. People just show up your near your house and test you out. And then at seventy, it goes to once a month, right? And then at seventy five, they just take your keys away and you're and you're riding on the old people bus. I, uh, I, I'm a very def- defensive pedestrian in the same way that we were taught to be defensive drivers, and which is means which means I just I take it very seriously, and uh, especially I have to say when I'm walking around with my kid. Um, because there's not, this is super boring, but, yeah. but when you, when, cut all this out. well, you know, our neighborhood is all pretty much, there's tons of four way stops, which means as you know, which I'm you, opposed to, well, here's the problem. If you put five stop signs more or less in a row, you know what that means? People are going to blow through them. 
No, I'm not a fan of four-way stops, but four-way stops do have an unimpeachable logic to them. Whether it's good for traffic or not is different, but there's no question what you do at a four-way stop. It's really simple. Everybody stops full stop. Whoever got there first goes, right? right. Whichever, whichever, whichever car got there to the stop sign first, they go first. Unless you got there at the same time, then the one on the right goes first. This is, this is a plot, yeah. right? But, yeah. but although, although what happens at a four-way stop in America, or, or with a lot of people is they Bellingham it a little bit. Well, or they assume that it's a four way stop, so the other three people are going to stop. This, this is this is why what I'm getting to is the ultimate lesson in civics that I have for my daughter after keep moving and get out of the way is to understand how what an analogy the four way stop is for like how we live together, where it's like you know if everybody. Like nobody loves stopping at a stop sign. It's a real pain because you got to stop your car. You're not getting there as fast. But yeah. if everybody stops at that four-way stop and honors those rules that I just laid out, which I think are pretty nearly universal, everything will be fine. The problem is not everybody does that. Still, if 99% of people do that, that means one out of 100 people is going to blow through that stop sign. And you know what? I have to tell you honestly, things will be fine a, an actually disturbing amount of the time, a yeah. sad amount of the time, everything will be fine because there's this one asshole that's not honoring what everybody else does, but because they're honoring it, they're still stopped while this guy flies through it. So, right. and he's are, a special guy, you know. Oh, he's a real special guy. He's a special guy. So nobody will die for a while unless you didn't see them or something. Um, the problem co- becomes when more than uh, more than a couple of people think that's okay, and right. that's when two people special, start dying. Two special guys. Yep. Exactly. And that's kind of, to me, that's a pretty good lesson in how civics works. But in any case, it does not change the fact that we do the right thing, that we stop here and you make eye contact and you look and, and you drive, you drive and walk in a way that is alert. And so like, to me, like the eye contact thing and the hand gesture thing, the nice hand gesture thing is a really good thing. I'll tell you, tell you this, John Roderick, I get to a stop sign. Somebody sees my daughter and I waiting there. Like I, I treat myself like a car. I wait. If they're there, I give them the wave. And mm-hmm. the please go right ahead. Mm-hmm. And then they give me this. Oh, this is okay. Oh, yeah, and I yeah. and I say, oh no, no, thank you. Thank you. Hey, right, right, and then they give me that they get me the more aggressive, like, no, I'm oh, letting you. you go. Never, ever take the wave and walk through the crosswalk. Because they can't see what you see. Yeah. 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 Uh, well, it's just a different show. Is, yeah, when when people when people uh when people do that, when they you know, when they're like, No, you go, I always take out my phone. <laughs> And just start looking at Twitter. I, 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 that's the one time I will make eye contact up to the point when I want them to go, and then yeah. I'll act like I don't see them, and I'll stare or I'll talk to my daughter and wait for them to go. Well, then this is the this is why I think that four way stops should just be they all four of those stop signs should go away because in a in a situation where it's a four way stop, technically that is a four way stop. It might as well if there's just, no signal, it's a four way stop. That's right, and and so what. What happens with what happens with the four way stop is it lulls people into thinking that that some super authority is in charge. Thanks, Obama. Thanks, Obama. That's right. Whereas a, a four way uncontrolled intersection, everybody is personally responsible. <laughs> they for know nav- it's, they know it's the Dome. They're going to be watching their ass. <laughs> That's right. And so you know, so they may not stop, but everybody is sure as shit looking out. Yeah. Going into a four-way uncontrolled intersection, and ultimately, that's your point. That's what they should, you know, what you want is everybody's complete attention, and and stop signs create create a, a, an environment where over time people just get lulled into into a state of like duh. 
I'll send you a link to a PDF that I think you will find very interesting. I will not well, release this you publicly. Know I, you know I love links to PDFs. Well, especially if it's about the project to try and make our streetcar line faster and more efficient Ooh. and the changes that they will be making, which are somewhat fascinating and a little bit scary, but I'm glad to see them putting some thought into it. I'm very excited. Because you're a student that. of this. You, you, yeah. you go and you do something. A couple dozen times, and pretty soon you're like you're like an associate professor of that topic, right? That's right. Like you know how to make this thing better. I know how to make the wall, the line at Walgreens better. That's right. Right. I I, I could do it. I I've got the will. You, you, I've got the will Wal- to power. Walgreens should pay you a million dollars a year, like they're paying Jeb Bush or whatever. Is that right? Be, well, no, it's not Wal- Walgreens. It's Barclays, mm. but. Somebody's paying Jeb Bush a million dollars a year. I should be on some kind of Walgreens retainer for sure. But um, I think there might be some traffic calming coming, which is one of those things where, yeah, get careful you get that done right. I just hope we don't lose our stop sign. I like our stop sign. Yeah, traffic calming. Yeah. I know that's that starts to think it starts to feel like it's the it is the it's the local transportation board's version of public housing, where they're trying to solve a problem with a by creating like twenty more problems. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, our, it's you know, it's it's a classic liberal idea. It's almost like let me help you get a. I know you need work, so I'm going to get you a job working in fast food where you have yeah. to own a car to get there, and you make yeah. eight dollars an hour. <laughs> yeah, right. that'll help you. And and you have to live an hour and a half away because because you know, because change can't afford to live in the city. Well, I was I was uh, I was walking around the other day, and I and I and a, I stopped at a train track uh, to let a train go by. And I was watching the train and I was thinking about the trains in America. And I was like, you know what? The trains in America need some reform. Mm-hmm. I have a, I have a big plan. I have a big, I have a big picture. I mean, I'm just standing here watching this one train go by, but in the course of that 10 minutes of waiting, I developed a very, a, a pretty big comprehensive picture of trains in America and what I thought the problems were, and how I needed to reform them. And so, I'm out for a walk, and now I'm in train reform mode. <laughs> and so I start, you know, so I start daydreaming, I start fantasizing about like, well, what would it take for me to be in a, in a position where my train reforms could really be enacted? Would, would, I, would I be jumping ahead to ask if you could lay out a little bit about the problem space as you see it in, in leading up to your train reform program, or... Sure. Well, I mean, so, you had you had what, you had eight or ten minutes to sit there. Yeah. So you're staring so, at a train and thinking. So the trains, you know, the the reason that the 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 trains were built, uh, a, a big part of it was that the the uh, the federal government granted the railroads all these enormous land grants that not only enabled them to build the railroads because, of course, they needed the land, but uh, the, the the federal government granted them tremendous land around the railroads that they were, you know, that was the that was their incentive to build the railroads because once they built the railroads, then they were in the land business. That's you know, a like pretty good deal. They owned the land around wow. where they were building in a kind of checkerboard pattern. So you could put the train where you want and then make a town. Well, no, like we need you to we need you to build the train out to San Francisco, but we're not going to expect you to to make this a tremendous capital investment and then just be the guys who are trying to make that money back by selling train tickets. Like, I mean, this is the plot of every Western. I mean, every other Western, right? It's like, well, the train's coming through, but they're, you know, but they're running it 
They're running it around the town. This is the more racially sensitive, municipally minded Western. Yeah, right. Exactly. This is the this is the Western where the problem is that you know that the judge is corrupt. Not that and, Natalie Wood was kidnapped. <laughs> right. <laughs> anyway, so the railroads became the railroads became very rich, and the railroads and became rich off of the public. I mean, basically off of the public. Like, and this is the great thing about federal land grants or federal grazing rights or federal water rights or all these federal grants that were initially made by the government as an incentive for somebody to go turn the Southern California desert into strawberry farms or, you know, or build a dam or whatever it is the federal government wanted you to do. They, 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 pay, they paid you in land so often. Land and resources rights. Which people immediately think of as that God gave them those things, <laughs> right? And that those land grants and rights to resources and land are something like uh, s- something age old and with a you know like this whole business of this Yahoo down in in Nevada who feels like his right to graze cattle on federal land is some some God given right, you know. And it's a very common it's a very common thing and and so many of the oil companies and mining companies timber companies railroads the farmers like they're all being subsidized by the government by the federal government but they act they believe not just act they believe that those grants are are something that preceded the government and that the government has no right to administrate, I guess. Anyway, so the so we're in a situation now where the railroads. So I mean, like, is it too blunt to say? Like, when you say to your kid, that's a that's a privilege, not a right. Like, they feel like it's a right. Oh, they absolutely. Like it's, not, it's not a freebie they were lucky enough to lottery their way into. It's something they should have gotten sooner, probably. Yeah, and and the, and they can point to the fact that they earned it. You know, the railroads earned it because in eighteen sixty some some like corporate forefather of theirs built a railroad although that was a subsidized process too it's not like any of those guys were actually out hammering spikes i mean that was like they were paying uh they were paying chinese and and uh italian people like a penny a day to do it like there's the the idea that the idea that it's a right is not something that they feel. It is they they know it is a right. It is they have made sure over the over 150 years that they have enshrined it in the law multiple times mm-hmm. that it's a right. So that every congressman they had in their pocket over the last 150 years has introduced a new layer of legislation that enshrines it it's as a like, right. Kind of like Disney and copyright. Yeah, right. Right. Sort of. it, I mean, like you, we got this thing that one time, but we should get that forever. Absolutely, and so uh, so Burlington Northern or uh, you know Santa Fe Railroad or whatever these companies, which are which are like corporate entities that have that have absorbed twenty five smaller railroads, and it's all changed hands a thousand times, and it was owned by Monsanto at one point, and you know like uh, now it's owned by Berkshire Hathaway, but the railroad, uh, you know. Their rights to those corridors are inviolate. You know, like 
they n- not not only do they feel like they have like a uh a, a like a, 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 an enshrined right to these enormous corridors right through the center of every American place, but that they allow, they, they graciously allow, for instance, Amtrak to lease a certain amount of time on, the, on that track well, let's say three times a day, they allow Amtrak to run a passenger train from X to Y. Um, but that's it. There's no, you know, you can't, you can't introduce a fourth train into the mix, no matter how many people are riding the trains or whatever. And, you know, and it's and and the the arguments for why it's non-negotiable or why that there's no access to that uh, to that track. I mean, there there are forty arguments. Some of them economic, some of them imperial. But no awareness or no sense of like what what sh- what should be true, which is that yeah, we uh, you were granted this stuff a long time ago, and really ultimately like that grant is a grant that we are making to you every day based on like we're making a good faith. We are, we are re-signing that grant to you every day until, until it is a, until it doesn't work anymore. Like there is no reason why we shouldn't except, except for the vested interests of a thousand pieces of legislation over the last hundred years. There's no reason why any secretary of transportation shouldn't say, you know what? Let's revisit this. Let's revisit the rights of way of every railroad in the country and figure out what's the best. Like we're the, the, the nation is a system. The national transportation grid is a system. And rather than have 40 different jurisdictions and 40 different little fiefdoms and all these people sitting on boards of directors saying, well, we can't let another, we can't repurpose these tracks or these rights of way because, because economics, <laughs> you know, it, we should be able to look at, we should be able to look at that grid. And this is the thing about the energy grid, about the highway grid, about like all the, all the way that resources are extracted and moved about the country. It, they're all grids and they are, being administered by, you know, all these micro jurisdictions, and there there isn't the, there isn't the will to say, no, you know what, this is a grid; and it needs to run. It needs to run smoothly, and it needs to run. And some and the decisions need to be made from one place. I mean, and that that scares a lot of people. Anyway, this was my fantasy as I walked along the street thinking, you know, really the only job for me is Secretary of Transportation. Oh, God, that would be good. And if I Would was you be retired or would you, would you want to have the job for no, a couple months? No, I want to have this job. And the, but the problem with good it for you. Be, the problem with it would be that you would, you would, as soon as, I mean, if I were ever nominated for the Secretary of Transportation, they would listen. Some staffer would listen to this podcast all the yeah. way through. And then they would prepare a very red type memo mm-hmm. like all caps memo saying listen <laughs> we 
we need to get in front of this guy fast. See, I, I this is the, I've been thinking about this, and there's so many things where it seems to me like. First of all, I just have to have to say, John, on a personal level, it seems like you cut yourself short on a lot of these things. You tell, you figure out why you can't be a CIA agent. You figure out why you can't be the, excuse me, operative, the, the retired director of the CIA, all, all these different things. You, you've already figured out how you can't get there because of the system. But like, what if you were more like a Ronin? Right. Hmm. Like, what if you were somebody who was like hired by the community? So what if, what if instead of being elected transport, uh, secretary of transportation, you were basically, they crowdfunded you uh-huh. to be the, the czar of transportation? A groundswell of popular demand. Yes. And it's like, no, we have, we've decided who secretary of transportation is. It is the czar. This is deeper than grassroots. I this is, like this. This is some idea. deep tendrils. I'm just saying. The thing is, that it's one thing to go like, oh, uh, I wonder if my guy's going to make it through the Senate hearing. Wah, wah, wah. You know, one yeah. time he smoked pot in 1978. Right. But in your case, there's not going to be anybody looking back. I mean, if you've got the, literally the mandate of the people, if mm-hmm. they've paid your salary and maybe some kind of a, a, an armed uh, expeditionary force, but some, mm. something you could have on your side, you go in there day one, you just start deciding that everything in America is basically an easement. And mm-hmm. then we decide <laughs> you're all sharing all of this, right? But well, we could pull your easement rights at any time. Well, and, let's start know, all over. Let's just. I'm glad it's here. We enjoyed your railway. Thank you very much, Mister uh, Mister Railroad uh, Baron's great right. great 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 granddaughter. But let's uh-huh. let's zero out the faders here. Start again. And Czar John has some ideas for how yeah. we're going to move the grid around. Yeah, that's exactly right. And you know, the regulating the trucking industry. Oh. I mean, and. Th- do they, so, is that even considered even vaguely regulated at this point? Oh, just only the thinnest you veneer. You could regulate the shit out of that. But so, so here we go. We got the trucking industry. We got the railroad industry. These yeah. are big vested interests. And yet, where are the resources for the gondola industry? Yeah, absolutely. The zip lines, the economies lines. of scale that, that, that you could get together by bringing the gondola and, say, the Postal Service together. There's so to, many yeah. economies of scale to this that are being – the little fiefdoms right now, John. you yeah. got a bunch of assistant vice presidents running around running the goddamn country. You have to look at it as a system. And the Postal Service is a perfect example. I was thinking about that the other day as I walked past a post office. The post as, I, office as I grind my teeth wondering why we just don't get mail anymore. <laughs> the post office and the, and the Amtrak – both have a they they're they're branded very similarly in a kind of like faded <laughs> red and blue and gray motif. The, the, the slogan for Amtrak and USPS should be a middle-aged man shrugging his shoulders. Yeah, right, a middle-aged <laughs> man behind a behind kind of like some bulletproof glass, like eh, can't help. But like the, those those two things, like the. Uh, the the health of Amtrak and the health of the postal service should be in some ways well now wait a minute let me let me let me revisit that because i was thinking you have about plenty, you have plenty of time to figure all all the details out you, big picture is what's important at this point i was thinking about is the post office just a thing like the telegraph service that that we used for a long time and we 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 felt very romantically about it but it, it but it's just a an anachronism and we and there's no reason to preserve it any more than there was a reason to preserve the canal you know the Erie canal um or is hmm. the postal service like intrinsically part of the health of the nation and i mean we we still need to move packages around is that a business that the government needs to be in I have such a simple solution. I can't believe no one will listen to me on this. 
I want to hear it. Okay, I, I here it is. Keep doing everything you're doing. Uh, keep selling Pixar stamps and stuff. You know, the, the key strategy over the last few years, such as it is, has been to sell stamps nobody will ever want to use, which I think is brilliant. Oh, it's just like, like gift certificates. Money away in the, yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. Okay, you ready? Here's Merlin's plan for fixing the postal service. Okay. Mail delivery two days a week, Monday and Thursday. Thank you. You're welcome. Wow. Why do we need daily mail delivery? You're absolutely right. We do not need it. We don't it need does. Saturday mail delivery. Nobody needs it. If you need it faster, pay to have it done faster. Pay the Postal Service because now they've opened up those resources where they can compete on somewhere between not getting your mail and FedEx. See, that is a really, really good idea, You pay, you pay $5. Or what is it now? It's three, something like 3 bucks to get something there in two days. That should be $5. If you want your mail before that, we'll deliver it to this place by hand for five dollars. Wow! Mm-hmm. All right, so you yeah. obviously need. to I mean, be obviously, I serve at your pleasure, but if I can star. do anything to help with, I do no. I don't know. Would I get the outfit? I could be pretty into it. Could I? Could I dress as an admiral? <laughs> but like the trains, I feel very strongly about the trains, as you know, mm-hmm. and the trains, God, could be such a great system. And, and I can't believe and, yes. they're less efficient. I can't believe that an 18 wheel truck is that efficient for the number of things that it's used for. It's absolutely ponderous to me that that, that could be, it, it must be. I mean, people aren't stupid. People don't spend money where they don't have to, but I can't believe that putting fuel into an 18 wheel truck and driving it halfway across the country is more efficient than putting it on a train. I don't understand that. I never have. Well, you yeah. tell me, does that, why is that? Why do people do that? It's the same containers, same shipping have- containers. I have wondered and wondered and wondered about it. What what sense it makes to have uh, a person who is not sleeping, yeah, driving a multi-ton truck, consuming all of those resources, yeah, four and a half dollars to a get gallon. lawn chairs to Missouri. Yeah, I don't understand it either, and it's part of the it's part of I guess why I need to go get a master's degree in interstate commerce. No, you need to just you need to tear the system open and see what's inside. You need to whack that fucking pinata and find out what's happening in these crooked grid industries. Yeah, it 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 really, really confuses me. Like I understand why I barely understand how it can possibly be cost effective to Cut down the trees in Washington, put them on a giant boat, ship them to Asia where they are manufactured into things. That are then put on a ship. Shipped back to us. Back to us, yes. Trucked to a store. How can we do that for another millennium? How is that possible? $1.99. Like, that's the thing I don't understand. Like, okay, all of that, if that's what it takes, I guess, to make that thing fine how else is he going to know he's the world's greatest grandpa well and so and this is what this is the thing that this is the thing that you see when you look at old buildings when you look at cathedrals you realize that up until a hundred years ago the cheapest the cheapest element of any project was labor raw materials were expensive Mm -hmm. labor was cheap and you could have you could have twenty five Italian guys sitting with hammers and chisels carving the little detail that's going to go on the cap, the capstone of your building a seraphim penis glands yeah they're just going to be sitting and they're going to they're going to spend a thousand man hours carving this decorative element that you're going to put up on top of a building that is a grain warehouse 
because why not? We got all these Italians. They seem to know how to do it. We got to get them off the streets. It does, you know, bricks are more expensive. A pallet of bricks is cost more than this guy's life. So yeah, you know, like have him car have him carve all this work in stone. Now we're living in a world completely where that is completely inverted. Labor is far and away the most expensive aspect of anything. Yeah. And so it makes sense to 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 ship this stuff all the way around the world just because somewhere else there is a like an 11-year-old girl with tiny hands that will do the work for a penny and and then we're going to ship it all the way back and and still sell it for a dollar ninety nine and still make forty percent profit. <laughs> they said recording a podcast on their <laughs> Macintosh computers. <laughs> Absolutely, I'm sitting here picking my teeth with a toothpick that was hand carved for me in Thailand. <laughs> Thank you, Shin Lee. <laughs> <laughs> but but it, but it is insane to me that that can possibly be true. And again systemically and this is we're back to one world government or whatever but just one one uh, uh, like a global regulatory agency but like that grid that system which is ultimately like the biggest make work project in human history where somebody some guy with like Oakley sunglasses up on top of his head on the back of his neck <laughs> on the back of his neck says you know what we, you know what we need we need squeezy bottles we need we need beer cozies that say big dick on them <laughs> and and so begins you know so the fuse is lit and begins this you know this massive undertaking involving hundreds of people you know trans global shipping oil being refined you know like boats being built shit sinking off the you know off the coast and all this stuff and it's just like and here come the big dick beer cozies that this guy <laughs> that this guy envisioned finally we have we've we've done it we've done it we brought you know we made these things and we brought them here and he's selling them he's selling them at the at the uh, widespread panic show and we feel like we are fucking doing it, you know, like commerce is happening. We are alive. And it's like, where do you start? <laughs> like, how far up the chain do you want to go before before somebody says like, whoa, 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 whoa. We don't, we don't need that. Yeah. We don't need that. That should be harder. That should be harder for that asshole to do, you know, like. And that is the, that's the ultimate, that's the ultimate, like, anti-American thing to say. The ultimate anti-capitalist thing to say. Absolutely. Is like that guy who had that, that barely, what you would barely describe as an idea. It might have a typo on it. They'll still make it. (laughs) It should be. Just, it's all going to end up in a goodwill anyway. Big duck. Yeah, that that idea should be harder for that guy to accomplish, and 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 the success of his accomplishment should not be a thing that we all take pride in. So maybe there should be some kind of a broader national Kickstarter for every project, 
Or pe- people would just have to say, you know, or you know, I guess the, the obvious joke would be a kick stopper or a kick pauser, or a kick spoiler, something where people could just jump in and say, no, we reject this. We do not want big duck uh, beer koozies. I, I feel like the, the U.S. Patent Office, the Patent Office should be expanded to a global office. Oh, boy. <laughs> and oh, no. and the, patent, the Patent Office should be, should be like, you know, the, the steps of the Supreme Court mm-hmm. where they, they, they just, you know, kind of go up and up and up and the building is up there. The, the, the Patent Office should be like this pantheon and there should be 10 miles of steps. And every single, you know, there should be ten steps and then a little flat space. It's like a ropes course to get there. Yeah, and and on, on every flat space, there should be a folding table and two people in chairs. And you should have to make your pitch every ten steps as you walk up the hill. And and the two people sitting at tables, like they they should. Each table should have a little stamp like pass or fail. And you also have to deliver some mail when you arrive there. <laughs> and and there and the uh drop off some koozies. The freecredit.com band should be playing I am a bill, I am only a bill <laughs> the entire way up the steps. This is the kind of thinking we need, John. This is what we need at the top is somebody who can find these I hate to keep using that phrase, but these economies of scale. There's there's no reason we can't we can't hook some of these train cars together, if you like. You know, can you imagine a a railroad system that was really designed that was really designed as a national system for maximum efficiency to replace as much of the as much of the business of trucking as you can so that in the same way that that there's this there's this movement among the 1% to open up all the regional airports to small jet traffic. Yeah. So we're we're no longer clustering everybody through Atlanta, but you know, within three miles of my house, there are like five airports that could handle a a small jet for like Larry Ellison types. Well, or Paul but, Allen, but that it would be it would be a version of. Um. Ultimately, it would. It, the idea is that if I'm flying to San Francisco tomorrow. Rather than get in my car, yeah, you don't have to. The spoken hub model is dead. Essentially, I shouldn't have to go through yeah. St. Louis uh, to get to Dallas or whatever. But, but even even I shouldn't have to go to SeaTac, right? <laughs> but I could just go down to the airport here in Renton and take an and and take an airplane. And if I'm coming to visit you, take an airplane to some airport that's probably there. Uh, in Golden Gate Park or something. I would be know? fine with that if all of those regional airports were also serving, serving the hub-and-spoke railroad stations. I think mm-hmm. railroads in America need to become the new internet. Right Hello. now, if you can't figure out where something goes, you put it on the fucking internet and charge for it, or not, or whatever. You put an ad on it. But the point is, if we put that kind of effort into having trains, I don't say replace the internet, but definitely stand alongside it, think how, think how that would be. And then that last mile would just be getting stuff from one place to another. Fine. We'll use a truck for that. We'll use a truck that takes something three miles. Sure. Not, not to el- take it 950 miles. An electric truck mm. that goes <laughs> from the regional little train hub. Maybe and- you can make a truck out of fleece. An electric fleece truck. <laughs> who, who could oppose that? And, so, and the thing is, then you wouldn't even have to look both ways when you cross the street. <laughs> Driven by a guy with a curly mustache and a beard. Like, I got hit by the fleece truck. That was great. <laughs> what if the trucks had to all be old-timey? <laughs> old-timey looking, but made out of modern materials. Modern yeah. fleece. So it's like, oh, 
Oh, look at the you can honor the unique culture uh, of the re- of the region. You can have a you can have a, a steampunk truck as yeah, long as it can hold one of those ship containers. You're good to go. They would all have little fleece mustaches, little <laughs> pink mustaches, and you could take some mail with you. I'm just <laughs> saying, this writes itself. It's about- so crazy that we have a whole system that's just about taking a piece of paper from one place to another. It's so stupid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, or I mean, oh, the stupidity. Oh, the stupidity. A lot of, you know, Merlin, a lot of these things, we could be, we could be handcrafting in our own homes. Part of <laughs> given, my, given, given the right sluice. <laughs> part of my project is a spinning wheel for every home. <laughs> now, when you say spinning wheel, a lot of people are going to think of Rumble Stiltskin, uh-huh. but I'm guessing it's a little more, it's a cyber spinning wheel. <laughs> well, listen. As, is it like every- a 3D printer meets like Amish people? Everybody's got these soft little dogs these days. Yeah. Right? All across the country, people are carrying around America these soft... America has gone crazy for soft dogs. No question. Soft little dogs with soft little fur. Now, why are we not spinning that into wool? God damn it. Why this is, it's not? ridiculous that these ideas end with this podcast. It's sickening to me. It's th- th- that shit is softer than alpaca. Yeah. And all these people with these soft little dogs, what are they doing? They're just sitting and watching reality they're, television. They're running around cleaning up their poop, not using the poop for anything. No, no, no. So you put the dog, you put the dog on a high a high protein diet. And you, <laughs> and you have to sleep over the sluice. Yeah, and you kind of fasten him to a little tray, a little tray that's always kind of shaking. Yeah. A little like it's there's a there's like a food chute and then there's like a shaking tray. And maybe a Jetson's uh treadmill. <laughs> right, he could generate treadmill. the energy to remove his own poop, and then the well. So the poop's going away on the treadmill, but also because we're like getting always... that base base minerals and, and diamonds out of that. Oh, and there and there's like a robot comb that's <laughs> combing him, always combing the new fur that he's growing. Who's a good and, boy? <laughs> and then the people who are sitting and watching reality television could also yeah. be they could be sitting at a spinning wheel. <laughs> they could be turning that wool into thread. Into into yarn. We could retrofit Lazy Boy so that that lever on the side actually produces a few kilowatts of energy. Why do we even need trucks? I mean, we the thing is, we could reduce a lot of the. A lot of it could be done with cannons, uh, artillery. Mm. Also, you just don't need that much paper. Blimps, <laughs> dirigibles. As transportation secretary, my dirigible platform is going to be dynamite. Mm. God, you help a lot of people. Thanks. Oh, that's good. 